0: Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. C.S. Lewis, On Ethics, Part 3. Thus, from my point of view, there is no particular mystery about this maxim. It is what I have been taught, explicitly and implicitly, by my nurse, my parents, my religion by sages or poets from every culture of which I have any knowledge. To reach this maxim, I have no need to choose one ethical code among many and excogitate impossible motives for adopting it. The difficulty would be to find codes that contradict it, and when I had found them, they would turn out to be not radically different things, but codes in which the same principle is for some reason restricted or truncated in which the preservation and perfection of man shrinks to that of the tribe, the class, or the family, or the nation. They could all be reached by mere subtraction from what seems to be the general code. They differ from it not as ox from man, but as dwarf from man, thus far as concerns myself. But where do those others get it from? those others who claim to be standing outside all ethical codes. Surely there is no doubt about the answer. They found it where I found it. They hold it by inheritance and training from the general, if not strictly universal, human tradition. They would never have reached their solitary injunction if they had really begun in an ethical vacuum. They have trusted the general human tradition at least to the extent of taking over from it one maxim. But of course in that tradition this maxim did not stand alone. I found beside it many other injunctions. Special duties to parents and elders. Special duties to my wife and child. Duties of good faith and veracity. Duties to the weak, the poor, and the desolate these latter not confined, as some think, to the Judaic Christian texts. And for me, again, there is no difficulty. I accept all these commands, all on the same authority. But there is surely a great difficulty for those who retain one and desire to drop the rest. And now we come to the heart of our subject. There are many people in the modern world who offer us, as they say, NEW MORALITIES. But as we have just seen, there can be no moral motive for entering a new morality unless that motive is borrowed from the traditional morality, which is neither Christian nor pagan, neither Eastern nor Western, neither ancient nor modern, but general. The question then arises as to the reasonableness of taking one maxim and rejecting the rest. If the remaining maxims have no authority, what is the authority of the one you have selected to retain? If it has authority, why have the others no authority? Thus a scientific humanist may urge us to get rid of what he might call our inherited taboo morality, and realize that the total exploitation of nature for the comfort and security of posterity is the sole end. His system clashes with mine, say, at the point where he demands the compulsory euthanasia of the aged, or the unfit. But the duty of caring for posterity, on which he bases his whole system, has no other source than that same tradition which bids me honor my parents, and do no murder—a prohibition I find in the Voluspa, as well as in the Decalogue—if, as he would have me believe, I have been misled by the tradition when it taught me my duty to my parents. How do I know it has not misled me equally in prescribing a duty to posterity? Again, we may have a fanatical nationalist who tells me to throw away my antiquated scruples about universal justice and benevolence, and adopt a system in which nothing but the wealth and power of my own country matters. But the difficulty is the same. I learned of a special duty to my own country in the same place where I also learned of a general duty to men as such. If the tradition was wrong about the one duty, on what ground does the nationalist ask me to believe that it was right about the other? The communist is in the same position. I may well agree with him that exploitation is an evil, and that those who do the work should reap the reward but I only believe this because I accept certain traditional notions of justice. When he goes on to attack justice as part of my bourgeois ideology, he takes away the very ground on which I can reasonably be asked to accept his new communistic code. Let us very clearly understand that, in a certain sense, it is no more possible to invent a new ethics than to place a new sun in the sky. Some precept from traditional morality always has to be assumed. We never start from a tabula rasa. If we did, we should end, ethically speaking, with a tabula rasa. New moralities can only be contractions or expansions of something already given, and all the specifically modern attempts at new moralities are contractions. They proceed by retaining some traditional precepts and rejecting others. But the only real authority behind those which they retain is the very same authority which they flout in rejecting others. Of course, this inconsistency is concealed, usually, as we have seen, by a refusal to recognize the precepts that are retained as moral precepts at all. But many other causes contribute to the concealment. As in the life of the individual, so in that of a community. Particular circumstances set a temporary excess of value on some one end. When we are in love, the beloved. When we are ill, health. When we are poor, money. When we are frightened, safety seems the only thing worth having. Hence, he who speaks to a class, a nation, or a culture in the grip of some passion will not find it difficult to insinuate into their minds the fatal idea of some one finite good which is worth achieving at all costs and building an eccentric ethical system on that foundation. It is, of course, no genuinely new system. Whatever the chosen goal may be, the idea that I should seek it from my class or culture or nation at the expense of my own personal satisfaction has no authority save that which it derives from traditional morality. But in the emotion of the moment, this is overlooked. Added to this, may we not recognize in modern thought a very serious exaggeration of the ethical differences between different cultures— The conception which dominates our thought is enshrined in the word ideologies, insofar as that word suggests that the whole moral and philosophical outlook of a people can be explained without remainder in terms of their method of production, their economic organization, and their geographical position. On that view, of course, differences, and differences to any extent, are to be expected between ideologies as between languages and costumes. But is this what we actually find? Much anthropology seems at first to encourage us to answer yes. But if I may venture on an opinion in a field where I am by no means an expert, I would suggest that the appearance is somewhat illusory. It seems to me to result from a concentration on those very elements in each culture which are most variable—sexual practice and religious ritual—and also from a concentration on the savage. I have even found a tendency in some thinkers to treat the savage as the normal or archetypal man, but surely he is the exceptional man. It may indeed be true that we were all savages once as it is certainly true that we were all babies once. But we do not treat as normal man the imbecile who remains in adult life what we were all intellectually in the cradle. The savage has had as many generations of ancestors as the civilized man. He is the man who, in the same number of centuries, either has not learned or has forgotten what the rest of the human race know. I do not see why we should attach much significance to the diversity and eccentricity—themselves often exaggerated—of savage codes. And if we turn to civilized man, I claim that we shall find far fewer differences of ethical injunction than is now popularly believed. In triumphant monotony, the same indispensable platitudes will meet us in culture after culture. The idea that any of the new moralities now offered us would be simply one more addition to a variety already almost infinite is not in accordance with the facts. We are not really justified in speaking of different moralities as we speak of different languages or different religions. You will not suspect me of trying to reintroduce in its full stoical or medieval rigor the doctrine of natural law. Still less am I claiming as the source of this substantial ethical agreement anything like intuition or innate ideas. Nor, theist though I am, do I here put forward any surreptitious argument for theism. My aim is more timid. It is even negative. I deny that we have any choice to make between clearly differentiated ethical systems— I deny that we have any power to make a new ethical system. I assert that wherever and whenever ethical discussion begins, we find already before us an ethical code whose validity has to be assumed before we can even criticize it. For no ethical attack on any of the traditional precepts can be made except on the ground of some other traditional precept. You can attack the concept of justice because it interferes with the feeding of the masses, but you have taken the duty of feeding the masses from the worldwide code. You may exalt patriotism at the expense of mercy, but it was the old code that told you to love your country. You may vivisect your grandfather in order to deliver your grandchildren from cancer, but take away traditional morality. And why should you bother about your grandchildren? Out of these negatives, there springs a positive. Men say, how are we to act? What are we to teach our children now that we are no longer Christians? You see, gentlemen, how I would answer that question. You are deceived in thinking that the morality of your father was based on Christianity. On the contrary, Christianity presupposed it. That morality stands exactly where it did. Its basis has not been withdrawn, for, in a sense, it never had a basis. The ultimate ethical injunctions have always been premises, never conclusions. Kant was perfectly right on that point, at least. The imperative is categorical. Unless the ethical is assumed from the outset— No argument will bring you to it. In thus recalling men to traditional morality, I am not, of course, maintaining that it will provide an answer to every particular moral problem with which we may be confounded. Monsieur Sartre seems to me to be the victim of a curious misunderstanding when he rejects the conception of general moral rules on the ground that such rules may fail to apply clearly to all concrete problems conduct. Who could ever have supposed that by accepting a moral code we should be delivered from all questions of casuistry? Obviously, it is moral codes that create questions of casuistry, just as the rules of chess create chess problems. The man without a moral code, like the animal, is free from moral problems. The man who has not learned to count is free from mathematical problems. A man asleep is free from all problems. Within the framework of general human ethics, problems will, of course, arise, and will sometimes be solved wrongly. This possibility of error is simply the symptom that we are awake, not asleep. That we are men, not beasts or gods. If I were pressing on you a panacea, If I were recommending traditional ethics as a means to some end, I might be tempted to promise you the infallibility which I actually deny. But that, you see, is not my position. I send you back to your nurse and your father, to all the poets and sages and lawgivers, because, in a sense, I hold that you are already there whether you recognize it or not. That there is really no ethical alternative— that those who urge us to adopt new moralities are only offering us the mutilated or expurgated text of a book which we already possess in the original manuscript. They all wish us to depend on them instead of on that original, and then to deprive us of our full humanity. Their activity is in the long run always directed against our freedom. "'Tis the gift to be simple."